We're going to be in the book of Titus, as we've already said. So if you'll turn with me into the book of Titus, I'm thankful for each one of you here tonight. I'm thankful that to be in this building. I'm thankful for the town of Covington and just to be able to grow up in a small town um, such as Covington and just have such a tight-knit group. I, I love the people of Covington, and, and God has placed us here for a reason. Um, I love being in this building. I, it, it brings back a lot of memories. I've sang over there many a times with Teresa Woods and, 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 and been in the back with many a wedding and with Mama being here and, and directing weddings. So it's kind of it's nice to be back in this building. It looks like we're in the Crystal Palace with this, with this, uh, this pulpit here. But uh, I promise you, that we're, our goal is not to be heretical from this pulpit. Um, uh, also, if someone knows anybody with the town of Covington and has a good electrician, we don't, we don't have the lights off for an effect. <laughs> we can't figure a way to get them on. So uh, I'm just throwing a hint out there, Chris, if you can find someone to help us out. That would be gracious. I got my little bedroom light here. So anyway, uh, I'm thankful, man. I am thankful. Turn your Bibles into the small book of Titus. And what a privilege and joy it is to be able to begin this journey with you as we make our way through this small yet powerful epistle. I mean, what an epistle to be able to start off with. Uh, we're a new church plant, and, and uh, this, this epistle has been said to be a, a church planter's dream, really a, a, a blueprint for church planters. And so it's a great book to be able to start us off on, I believe, as we start our journey as Grace Bible Church. And uh, uh, John, he, he brought this to the leadership team, and he, he actually, I believe, has memorized it. I don't know if he read, I think he read from the Bible, but I believe he's memorized this book. So he brought this and thought this would be a great book to preach from and uh, for, as our first book, and I, I couldn't agree uh, any more than that. Um, though the book is only just three chapters, we don't need to let this epistle fool us because we can liken it to a sponge. Uh, the sponge is real tight and needy in its package, but as you, uh, as you expose it to water, it grows. And, and so I think that's what we'll see in this book. As, we, as it looks small, you can read it. What do we do it in five or six minutes? But as you exegete the Word and you pull this thing apart... It, it, it grows tremendously. It's profound. It is, it, uh, uh, as we unwrap the theological profundity of, profundity of these verses, I think it's going to be so helpful for us. And typically this book is overshadowed by its close counterparts. First and Second Timothy are what we think of when we have the pastoral epistles. That's epistles. That's the first and second, uh, first and second Timothy, and then Titus. That's the two books right before Titus. Uh, in in the book of First Timothy, we see that Paul he emphasizes right doctrine uh, to his brother in faith Timothy. He stresses theological truths such as the proper function of the law, salvation, the attributes of God, the fall the person and the deity of Jesus Christ. He goes to election, and he also speaks of the second coming of Christ. And if Timothy, 1 Timothy, focuses on right doctrine, then 2 Timothy was written to encourage a pastor who was in danger of weakening spiritually under the pressure of the church and the persecution of the world. Paul, he, he exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy to stir up his gift to replace fear with power and love and a sound mind to not be ashamed of Paul as well as his Lord and Savior, but willingly suffer for the gospel and to hold on to the truth. But here in Titus, 
Paul, he brings a word of caution to the church, a reminder that good works must accompany our proclamation of the truth and our defense of the gospel. Paul's letter to the young pastor Timothy, or, or Timothy encourages him to protect and to preach the word of God, while the letter to Titus tells him to practice those things. This epistle was the second to last letters that we have of Paul, 2 Timothy being the last. Most scholars believe that it was written by Paul because like other letters that uh, in the New Testament bearing Paul's name, the letter to Titus begins by identifying not only the author, I, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, but it also identifies the recipient, that being young Titus, but don't let the recipient fool us because it is, though it is to Titus, it is also to the church. We see this, we will see this a little bit later as we get into the second chapter. This letter is to the church and how they are to act. Not only how Titus is to act. If you recall, Paul wrote 1 Timothy after his release from his first prison imprisonment uh, around somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. And it would be around the same time that he wrote our epistle, Titus. 2 Timothy being written from prison somewhere between 66 and 77. If you remember, he was imprisoned and, uh, the first time. It was a fairly light sentence. He got out and he would have his final missionary journey. And then, and then ultimately that final missionary journey led him back to Rome. And ultimately that's where he would face his death as a martyr. He would be martyred. But that's where he would write his final epistle, 2 Timothy. The letter of Tide to Titus implies that Paul has previously been on the island of Crete where Titus currently is and Paul says that he plans to winter in Nicopolis some 200 miles northwest of Athens on the west coast of Greece and he would have Titus come to him at some point. Titus, he was a young man uh, who accompanied the Apostle Paul on many of his missionary journeys. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and Titus was just that. He was a Gentile, a Greek, as Galatians tells us, who was a fellow worker among the Corinthians. In fact, Paul mentions Titus no less than nine times in the second Corinthians. One of Titus's early assignments would have been to go and he would have go and collect an offering from the Corinthians for the poor saints at Jerusalem as well as he would deal with the tense situations that arose between Paul and the Corinthians. We all remember that book so well. Paul, on one occasion, he was comforted by the coming of Titus in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And at another time, he was sad because Titus was not there because he had a hope to meet him. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13. Titus was a dear friend of Paul and a great companion to him. And he was most likely a convert of Paul's, designated by the title in verse 4 of our epistle, a true child according to the common faith. Titus was regarded by Paul as a true and trusted minister in Paul's apostolic ministry. And it's from this letter that we surmise that Titus accompanied Paul to the island of Crete and was left there to strengthen and to organize and to superintend the work that Paul had foundationally laid. He says to Titus, he says, to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. It's surmised that somewhere around 6062 that Paul would have written this letter to his dear friend Titus for encouragement, for guidance, for strength. The island of Crete, it sits in the Mediterranean. Some, it's one of the largest islands in that area. It's about 150 miles long and it's only about 35 miles wide. 
It sits south of Athens, a couple of miles off the shore uh, in Greece, and it's north of Egypt. We aren't certain as to when the gospel was first preached on the island, uh, or, or nor by whom it was preached, but we do see in the book of Acts a couple of hints in, in Acts chapter 2, 11 at Pentecost, that among those that were converted, if you remember, were Cretans. And we can be fairly certain that, that they would have returned to their, their hometown uh, with, with great news of salvation and spread this message to their countrymen. But we don't have much information following that great day of salvation regarding the spread of the gospel. Luke, he doesn't make much mention of it in his, uh, in his epistle or his, his gospel, and he doesn't make mention of it in the, in the book of Acts. We, we don't know, uh, uh, we do know that Paul stopped off at the island of Crete on his way to Rome the first time, on his way to being in prison, but, but it's believed that Paul was only there for a short period of time, and, and, and it's believed that that gospel message did not get out very, very uh, sp widespread because he was not on, there, uh, on that island long at all. But we do see from this epistle to Titus that Paul had visited the island, most likely during Paul's final missionary journey after he was released from prison uh, the first time. And as he traveled to Rome, he and Titus would have stopped off at the island of Crete, and it was most likely at this time that the gospel was spread with such vigor and, and the churches were established. We can deduce this by what Paul says, tells Titus in verse 5. He says, to set what remains in order and establish elders in what? In every city. Titus was known as an as a, as a, as a island of a hundred cities. It was many cities around the island, and, Paul, and Titus was to go and set up these churches and to put in order in these cities. It was a heavy task. It was a wide-ranging task, but Titus was the man to do it. it. It must be noted that Crete was not a very nice place. It was evil. The Cretans' character and their societal norms posed a challenge to the early church as well as Titus. The island, it was a, it was a mythological hotbed. Just a couple of inter inter interesting facts. The island was known and it's still known today as a, as a, with its, for its mythological allure. Uh, legend has it, it's where Zeus, the, the king of gods and men, were born in a cave in Greece and was raised by a goat, Amalthea. Sounds legit. Nearby, the twins Artemis and Apollo, they were born. Zeus defended the island of Crete when it was attacked by a giant lizard by throwing a lightning bolt at it, turning the beast to stone and into an island that is now called Diotrephes. That's not right. It's not Diotrephes, it's Di Diophanes. Other mythological creatures scatter ancient Greek, Crete history, those such as Sirenes and Muses, the great automaton Talos, Media, King Minos, Dallas, Minotaur, that evil monster that formed from the union of Minos's wife and a bull. The backdrop of the ancient Cretan religious system gives us an insight as to why Paul may have wrote about Jewish myths. These people are all wrapped up in mythological beings and, and things, and they call us crazy for believing in a worldwide flood. I, I, don't, I don't get it, you know. Not only the character of the Cretans were they pagan, but the influence of the Judaizing teachers that had made their way onto the island were problematic as well. We're going to get into that. 
Paul, he doesn't hold back his thoughts on the Cretans in chapter 1. And in one of the most unusual passages in the New Testament, one of which we're going to study in depth in the coming weeks, the apostle quotes from one of the ancient Cretan prophets of his day, a secular Greek poet who describes the Cretans whom Titus would have to minister to as always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. The Cretans, they were a people characterized by these attributes, none of which are flattering. He goes on to explain about certain ones. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their deeds. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good deed. Not very good words. This is the kind of society that we find the early Christian church wrapped up in. And this is the society that we find young Titus having to minister to. He receives a letter basically saying, I want a good church, Titus, going in every town on this island. That's what I want. Paul and Titus, they didn't see this laid-back island culture, the debased island off limits for evangelism or church planning or strength planting strong churches. They didn't just look at it as a cast off and say, no, we're not going to deal with that island. They're too debased. They're too, they have too much debauchery in them. No, they saw it as a challenge and they saw that these people needed Christ. We could say that this book is, is helpful in strengthening study for younger church plants such as us. Consider the task at hand. Among other things, Titus was to plant strong churches in the sense of gathering existing unassimilated believers into a New Testament kind of church in the midst of a godless, gluttonous, insincere, falsehood, religious culture. That was his job. Not much different than what we see today. Not much we see different in Covington today. Paul knew that there was a great danger that their religion would be hollow and dishonest, not practicing what they preach, their behaviors not matching their doctrine. Among these Cretans who professed to, to be Christians were unruly vain talkers and deceivers, particularly those who had come out of Judaism. Paul instructed Titus, to, you reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Don't elevate them, reprove them. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. These people, you see, they professed to be Christians. They professed Christ. However, they reflected the attitudes of the world around them. They didn't look different than those within their culture. They looked exactly like their culture, but yet they professed Christ. So there is this trouble on the island of Crete, and Paul knows that Titus is the man for the job. He's earned his trust, and it's Titus that Paul sends to correct the issues within the churches on this island. And we don't see Paul telling Titus, he doesn't say, hey, appeal to the culture. He doesn't say, he doesn't let him go into these churches and masquerade the church like the society or exegete movies. Or, or dress up as the latest pop star or sing the latest and greatest hits on the radio or preach a, a, a prosperity light gospel or, or to look like the world so that the world will come into the church. He doesn't tell Paul, Titus to do that. He doesn't say, hey, look like the church so that the church will, so that, look like the world so that the world will come into your church. He doesn't say that. He didn't, he didn't tell him to accommodate and gerrymander to the vile culture of the Cretans. No, Paul told Titus that his task was to teach the Christians to be different. He says to set in order what remains. 
They, they aren't to look like the world. God, He wants the local church, the members, the doctrine, the leadership, the disciple-making to be done in a certain way, a way that He has prescribed His way. Generally speaking, Paul is saying to Titus, we started something according to God's power, word and His power, and we need to finish it according to His word and by His power. Additionally, Paul says in chapter 2 of verse 1, but as for you... Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Paul says, look, these people, they profess to know Christ. They profess to have good doctrine. But if their lives don't match their profession, then their doctrine is in vain. And it's these two ideas right here, that right here coupled together, that thrust us fully into the epistle known as Titus. If you scan through the book of Titus, you'll, you'll see that Paul mentions the word doctrine four times. But even more than the word doctrine, he mentions the words good works or good deeds five times. Paul is focused on good deeds of the church, not for salvation, but for sanctification. Paul begins in chapter 1 pointing out what the elders, the leadership must be. They must be in so many terms, possess good deeds that are in accordance with sound doctrine. If you have your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul speaks of the false teachers, those who are defiled and unbelieving, those in total antithesis of what God has called Christians, not to mention church leaders to be. And he says this, he says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And then in chapter 2, verse, chapter, uh, verses 7 and 8, he says this, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine dignified. Chapter 3, Paul tells Titus to remind them, that being the church, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. You can underline that, verse 8 of that same chapter. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to be speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Underline that. These things are good and profitable for men. And then in verse 14 of the same chapter, our people must also learn to engage in Underline this, good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. It's clear that Paul, what Paul's saying here is that the believers are to be marked by good deeds. In fact, one of the key verses, I believe, of this passage is in chapter 2, verse 10, speaking of bond slaves, but has, is applicable to, to all of us, for we're all slaves unto somebody. He says this, I mean, this is wonderful. He says, showing all good faith that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Adorning the doctrine. Our good deeds must adorn the doctrine in every respect. And it's throughout this epistle that we find the Apostle Paul instructing this young pastor to teach these believers on this island that they are to live a life that is unarguably righteous, Loving, selfless, and godly. A life that is marked in pure contrast with the lives that the pagans on Crete live, as well as the false teachers that infiltrated the church. You see, we don't see Paul dealing with false doctrine so much in this epistle. For they're probably, we can deduce that they probably had good doctrine. There, there was some bad doctrine going on, but for the most part they got it. They professed at least to have it right. But sound doctrine is not everything. It is essential, but it's not enough. 
Sound doctrine is certainly essential to Paul, for he wants people to know the truth about salvation. It's key that we get this right. Don't, don't understand me. It's key that people understand how they're saved. It's key to get the gospel right, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who is going to believe. He says in chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, that when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind, He saved us. Christ saved us. It's He who saves. He is the one who, He's the only one who can do that. You can't save yourself. In fact, He says it's not because of deeds done in righteousness that saved you. They can't. Your good deeds outside of Christ cannot save you. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, one of the greatest statements we have in the Bible. Paul, he most certainly wants us to know sound doctrine. It's absolutely key, but Paul wants these believers to understand that their good deeds must accompany sound doctrine. You can't have either or. Sanctified behavior is the essential companion to authentic sound doctrine. Right roots and right fruit is what he's looking for. Paul wants them to be people who are transformed, not merely informed. You, you may verbally affirm some great profession of faith. You may even preach it week in and week out. But if your deeds, they don't back that, that profession up, then Paul says you are defiled. One pastor, he describes it this way, that your deeds deny or they underscore the doctrine you claim. Your deeds, they deny or they underscore the doctrine that you proclaim. Meaning that, it, that what you do in your everyday life, your public and private life, they will either prove that, that you believe what you are teaching... Or they will utterly prove that you don't believe what you're saying and you are no better than a hypocrite denying what you actually say. Isn't this what the church is looking for? Sound doctrine as well as good deeds? We need men who are going to teach the Bible, who aren't going to stray into false teaching, who are going to stand on the Word of God, armed with nothing but the Word of God, teach men and women the hard truths of the Bible, exhort men and women from the pulpit the Word of God and how to live godly lives. But we also need men and women who are going back that, that, with good teaching, that are going to back that good teaching up with good deeds, righteous living, sensible living, so that they prove the reality of their teaching. That's what we need in our churches today. I'm, I'm tired of seeing story after story on the news of pastors falling or Christians walking away from the faith. You were never in the faith. But pastors and leaders in the churches, they are the ones who are to exercise this, the good deeds of what Scripture has laid out. It is a high calling for a pastor. Yes, he can get it right so many times, but he must not fall into, into utter sin in his life. He must be a holy man. And we as Christians must be holy as well. Our living must back up what we teach. Pastors and leaders who say one thing, yet they live a different life, whether it be in their public life or their private life, their deeds, they don't match their doctrine. And most of the time, these, 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 uh, these deeds, they're done in secret. They're done when no one is watching. But in the case of the Cretans, they aren't even done in secret. They're done in public for everyone to see. Their daily, daily lives, they don't match what they preach or teach. They've fallen in some type of antinomianism. Grace, this hyper grace. 
God's grace covers it all, so I can sin, and I'm no longer, uh, I, I, can, I can do what I want to do. Phil's going to teach on that next week, on being a slave unto Christ. But the question comes up, why? Why must our deeds match our doctrine? Paul tells us in verse 11 of chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, what, to, de- to, to take up ungodliness? No, he says to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Second London Baptist Confession in chapter 16 captures this thought well, <clears throat> that good works in the life of Christians are necessary. It says this, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and the evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness. They strengthen their assurance. They edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel. They stop the mouths of their adversaries and they glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their faith or their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. We're to live our lives as changed people, as people who have been purchased off the slave block, redeemed, The gospel that Jesus proclaimed was a call to discipleship, a call to follow him in submissive obedience. Real faith inevitably produces a changed life. Our lives, when we are saved, must be visibly present. It's grace that brings us salvation, Paul says. That's past. It instructs us. That's present. And grace that keeps us looking for that blessed hope. And that is future and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's grace that does that. And he goes on in verse 14 that it was Christ who redeemed us from every lawless deed. You see, we're no longer of this world. We're no longer owned as Christians by by the devil, by this world and sin. We're a purchased people. We're a peculiar people, snatched off the slave block and brought under a new master whose yoke is easy and his burden is light that he might purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Our Our Lord's words about eternal life were invariably accompanied by warnings to those who might be tempted to take salvation lightly. He taught that the cost of following him is high and that the gate and the path, they're narrow. And very few find it. He said many who will call upon him on that final day will be forbidden from entering into the eternal gates. Paul tells us who we once were in chapter 3, verse 3, For we also once were foolish, ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's who we were, Paul says. He says then, he says, uh, the the hinge of theology hinges on small words. The door of theology hinges on small words. He says, but, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love For mankind appeared. He saved us. That means we're no longer like that anymore. In so many terms, he says, that's not us anymore. That's who we once were, but now you serve a new master. You're a slave to someone new who commands for you to be righteous. It's what we see in Romans 12 versus Romans Romans 1 through 11. What are we? We We see what has happened for us as Christians, what God has done for us. And then in Romans 12, here's what we are to do in, in response to what God has done. And he says that you are to live your life as a living sacrifice. That's who we're to be. 
So what we see in this epistle, once Paul gets through with his lengthy yet oh-so-rich salutation, is Paul's going to the practical side of Christian living. Paul told Titus to set in order what remains. God did not and does not want flash in the pan local churches. These instructions that we will study will show that Paul wants churches set in place for the long haul. His command to set in order describes generally making something strong, which was not so much. Paul wanted churches that would stand, withstand the winds and the storms of the world, the, the flesh and, and the devil. Paul wanted to see that Titus teach and model the principles of sanctification that adorn the doctrines of God our Savior. And one of the main ways that we have a strong and enduring church is to have strong and enduring and godly leadership. And that's where Paul goes to first. He goes to the leadership qualities and the conduct of the leaders. Paul wants to see that right leadership is set up at each one of these churches on the island of Crete. In order to have the right kind of church, you need to have the right kind of men. You need to have the right kind of leadership. No church will grow to its full potential without the right kind of leadership. It cannot. And this was always at the heart of Paul. Think about it. He cared about his flock. He cared that his people grew up into the fullness of Christ. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom my every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God." That's the pastor's job, is to, 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 to see that his people are filled up to the fullness of God. It's the heart of a true pastor. See that they're sanctified. Starts with leadership. Paul, he, he, he lays out what godly leadership looks like. In, in chapter 1, it's not, it's not as if Titus didn't know this already, but, but like we said earlier, this letter is not just to Titus. This is to the church in general. Urge older men, he says. Young men, older women, young women, bond slaves. This is to the church. He's writing this so that the people would know how to behave within the church. And so he starts off by telling Titus to set up a plurality of elders with all the cities there that, are, that have the churches. One man rulership does not work. Alexander Strzok, in his Bible, in his book, Biblical Eldership, he writes this, Paul did not consider a church to be fully developed until it had functioning, qualified elders. It's God's desire to see every church with a team of elders, and that's where Paul starts off with with Titus. Titus put together the right leadership, the right kind of leadership, and they need to be the right kind of men. They need to be, he says in verses 6 through 9, these men who are qualified by God, not by man, but by God, to lead the local church. Their qualities must be that they are above reproach. You can see this in chapter 1, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of, fond of sordid gain, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound truth and doctrine to refute those who contradict. The reason... For strong, godly leadership is that they are to teach what is sound in accordance with godliness. 
They are to model their lives after Christ. Their deeds must accompany what they proclaim. Alexander Strzok again writes, Elders lead the church. They teach and preach the word. They protect the church from false teachers. They exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine. They visit the sick and pray and judge doctrinal issues. They shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. In fact, John shared with me a, a, a quote out of uh, MacArthur's book, uh, Anxious for Nothing, and it said this. I thought this was fitting. Never expose yourself to the ministry of someone whose lifestyle you can't respect. That goes for me. That goes for John. That goes for Phil. Or anybody who has a ministry. You can't respect their lifestyle. Do not expose yourself to their ministry. What a great word. Strong, godly leaders must also be competent. And they must also be able to refute error. Teach truth, refute error. Teach truth, refute error. They, they are to keep out the false teachers, the wolves, those who contradict sound doctrine. In verses 10 through 15, if verses 10 through 15 describe, they describe the reason for strong godly leaders needing to be put into place. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They're in it for the money, they're in it for the fame, for the for their own personal gain. And he backs it up by quoting one of their prophets. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy glutton. This testimony is true. But he doesn't tell Titus not to deal with them or leave them alone. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, Titus, they're too difficult. They're not worth it. Just leave them alone. Go, go plant your church somewhere else. Just leave them alone. No, he doesn't say that. He urges him because of what their deeds are. He says, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. That's grace. That's grace. There's a reproving is good. We're such a snowflake society today is we don't want anybody coming and reproving us. We get our feelings hurt and we just we just go off moping. And, and, and sometimes I do the same thing. I wear my feelings on the shoulders sometimes. But reproof is good. Why? So that we may be sound in faith. I would not be sound in faith today if I didn't have men come in my lives and reprove me of bad doctrine. One is sitting out here in the audience today, I can promise you. I'm thankful for that. It's good that I get reproved at times. Why? Because I don't want to err. I don't want to be false. I don't want to treat, uh, teach falsely. Why? Because there's a greater judgment upon a man who teaches falsely, who teaches the Word of God. Titus, teach them that it be this way to the point where you must reprove them severely. It's vitally important if the evangelism that takes place on this island is going to be effective they must have sound doctrine and you must reprove them. You see, reverence and dignity are required by the believers. Even in this Cretan, undignified culture, they aren't allowed a pass. They aren't to look to the surrounding culture. Rather, rather they are to be completely different. And, and Paul, he closes the chapter with these sobering words. And hopefully this rings in your ear tonight because it's ringing in mine. He says, they profess to know God, but by their de de deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. What an indictment. May it never be said of us. We're obviously diving into that statement even further, but that resounds in our hearts and minds. It causes me to sit up straight, grabs me by the collar, and begs the question, is this me? Is that you? Could that characterize my life? Could that characterize your life? 
Do my deeds that I live out daily, do they deny him or do they affirm him? Do they deny the doctrine that I hold oh so dearly or do they continually affirm that which I teach, that which I preach, that which I counsel with? Do they affirm it? Paul, he moves from leadership qualities which make for a sound biblical and strong church to practical sanctified living advice for various age groups within the church in chapter 2. He says to Titus, chapter 2, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. This list of things that I'm going to tell you, these are what must accompany sound doctrine. Hand in hand, they must go together. He first turns to older men and they're to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith in love and perseverance. Then he turns to older women. They're to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. So we see the task of an older woman is to train up younger women. There's a task for that. How to behave, how to be good wives, how to be mothers, good mothers and good Christians. He then moves to young men, urging them to be sensible, in all things, show yourself. Don't leave it. Uh, 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 show yourself, uh, uh, Titus, to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Paul, he even tells Titus to teach these things, to, to be, how to be a good employee in the workplace, how to be strong people in the gospel, and to, and to, and, and to have good works, and to be zealots uh, of good works. These things coupled together make for strong, enduring churches, churches that are on fire for God and are able to witness effectively. So as Paul says, the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. I thought it interesting as I was going through this. Note he, he says the singular, show yourself to be an example. Paul, I mean Titus, show yourself. You're not above this. Show yourself to be a good example so that the enemy would not have anything bad to say about who? You, about us, about us. One poor testimony can impact the larger group. One poor testimony can impact our church. That's key. It's important. How careful we must live our lives. Our lives must be opposite of that, our poor testimony. I tell my children all the time, we live in glass houses, especially on Facebook. You live in a glass house. Our lives must stand, as the apostle says, as one that adorns the gospel of our Savior, like a rare jewel that stands out amongst all the, the other sequins on the dress. It's a rare jewel. We must adorn the doctrine of the, the gospel of God with our good works. And he tells Paul in verse 15 to speak and exhort and reprove these things with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Titus. Titus wasn't to speak these things as helpful suggestions or advice or even counsel, but he was to exhort and to reprove as these are requirements of God. He is to speak them with authority, to command them. This is how God expects his children to live. Titus, to speak on his own authority, he, speak, he doesn't speak on his own authority. That's not what we do as leaders in the church. That's not what elders do. They don't speak on their own authority. They speak on God's authority and God's authority alone. He has the final authority. He has given his authoritative commands by divine revelation, the Bible. All binding spiritual commands come from him through Scripture alone, not tradition, not other documents, not any other man, but come from God alone. He gives us the command on how his church is to act and to, and to uh, function. One writer puts it this way, The Bible is the real, pre real, real preacher, and all the role of the man in the pulpit is to simply let the passage say its peace through him. Unleash the lion. 
For the preacher to reach the point where he no longer hinders, obstructs his text from speaking is harder work than is sometimes realized. However, there can be no disputing that this is the task for the preacher. Speaks on God's authority and his alone. Paul, Titus, faithful ministers, they have the things that come from God that constitute sound doctrine in the Scripture. Their responsibility, our responsibility, is to disseminate these things to the people. How? By speaking them, preaching them, teaching them, coming alongside someone, exhorting them to believe, convicting them of what Scripture says. See to it, Titus, he says, that they don't disregard you. That word means, in, in the original Greek, is to evade. See to it that they don't rationalize around you or outthink you. Don't let them outthink you. Let no one imagine that they can evade you by their rationalizations, by their self-justification. No, you stand firm, Titus. You hold them to the truth. You make sure that no one escapes their responsibility, their personal responsibility before God to act in obedience to the truth. That's the pastor's job, to teach truth, to exhort truth, and to refute error. Don't lose that level of respect, Titus. Hold up Scripture. Do your homework. Don't get up here and just wing it and talk about yourself and, and tell stories. Don't use modern psychology or get in the flesh. Have fall behind what you teach, and you better be grounded in Scripture so that they don't outthink you. We have a lot of pastors today who are being outthinked because they don't know the Word of God. And finally... Chapter 3, he speaks about Christians in general and what to do and what not to do. And he quite possibly writes one of the greatest passages in all of the New Testament that remind believers of who they once were and who they are now. We have already mentioned it, so I'm not going to mention it again, but I will say that, I'll say that when we get to this passage, it will be a dogfight as to who gets to preach this passage between the three of us. It is a, such a wonderful passage, and I, I'm looking forward to it. But actually, before we go, look at verse 8, and I'm wrapping up. Verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, this is a trustworthy st statement. Speaking about what Jesus had done for unworthy, debased sinners, wretched sinners such as us, he says this, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. There it is again. Titus, speak with boldness, confidence, with authority, these things that God has given you to teach. Why? So that they will engage in good deeds. It is a must. The apostle, he closes with some personal words of admonishment and advice, and at the end of it, he gives a glimpse into his own life, he basically says, hey, these people are going to come to me, send these pe people to me. Titus, you're coming to me at some point. And then he closes his letter. Just as he opened it, he says this, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. There's the theme of the letter. There's our theme. We've seen it throughout this book that truth must line up with godliness. Sound doctrine and good deeds go hand in hand. Different sides of the same coin. And the basis of it, as we've already seen, is the hope of eternal life with God who cannot lie promised long ago. And that promise, it's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, before Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Promised of a Redeemer who would bring life to men 
And this is the reference that Paul makes here. He then speaks of the method by which it would come at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of our God and Savior. It's been manifested in Christ and now we get to preach Christ. We get to preach this. We get to preach this power of salvation. If your life has been changed at all, it was by preaching, by hearing the living word set forth. And when you believed it, you found that you too experienced the washing and regeneration and the continuous renewing of the Holy Spirit. Just a few things I'll leave with you before we close. Just a few application points I think that'll, that'll help us set the theme that'll, that'll resound, that we'll come back to over and over again. But one, Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their, dene- their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Are you real? Is your life real? Does your life back up your doctrine? Does it match what you believe and what you teach? Do your deeds affirm or deny it? Does your behavior, does it authenticate your doctrine? Number two, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny godliness, ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Grace instructs us to deny godliness, ungodliness. We aren't to cheapen that grace that we have been shown. Grace is what teaches us not, uh, us not to remain where we have been. Grace is what has set us free. Scripture teaches us that those who truly believe will love Christ. They will therefore long to obey Him. Grace is not static. Scripture describes it as an active force. It strengthens us. It works in us. It produces faith and lives in our lives, it, it, in our hearts. It gives us help in the time of need. And as Paul tells Titus, it instructs us. In Titus chapter 3, verse 8, Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. This really is an extension of point one, but godly behavior verifies godly belief. Godly behavior verifies godly belief. Your doctrine isn't really pure if you don't impart it to people in a dignified way through sound speech that can't be condemned. The people of Covington, they will not be reached. We can have sound doctrine all day long. We can preach it all day long. But if our lives do not match it up, then they can accuse us of it. They have something to come against us. We must not give them anything to accuse us of. We must live good lives. As Christians, we are more than people who just believe in God. There are a lot of people who believe in God. Just ask them. Most people say, yeah, I believe in God. But a very small percentage believe God when He speaks. Christians take God at His word and respond to that word and engage in good deeds because they have been changed. Christians are the ones who live, live, who lives back up what they believe. And that life, that doctrine, those sound words, what, that's what leads to salvation of loss because they demonstrate transformed lives. Why come to them with a gospel and say, hey, this is going to change your life when I'm living a life that is not changed. It must, we must have good deeds that back up our doctrine. Your life as a Christian, your doctrine as a Christian, and your your speech as a Christian are crucial to your walk in the Lord. May we adorn ourselves this morning, this evening, with the garment of holiness and be a peculiar people, zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I just pray, Lord, that, that we are a peculiar people, zealous for good works. I pray that we know sound doctrine. It's key that we know it. 
For when we know sound doctrine, we know you. That we preach it from the mountaintops. But I also pray that our lives match it. They match what we teach. May we, found, may we not be found tonight to be hypocrites. For those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them, I pray tonight that they realize that their good deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. And all it does is sends someone who thinks he's a good person to hell. I pray that their eyes are opened. I pray that they see Christ. I pray that they see their wretchedness. And they cry out to Christ in repentance and faith so that then they may be snatched off the slave block and be able to do good deeds for you, for your glory. Help us, Father, to be repentant people. If this has hit our hearts tonight, as ones who do not live as we teach, you're a merciful God. You stand ready to forgive. May we come to you in forgiveness. Forgive us of where we have failed you. Forgive us of where we've not led our lives according to your word. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.